0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. So first off, I wanted to start off the podcast announcing the winner for the giveaway. But, unfortunately, it's no one. No one participated in the giveaway. But that's okay, this isn't going to be a pity party. I just have to work harder to find out what you guys like. And I won't take it too personally. This is, after all, a podcast with about 10 minute long episodes, so it's hard to grab new people's attention. I would love to start improvements by making episodes a little longer. But, unfortunately, I don't really have the time or writing capacity by myself at the moment. So, we'll table that for now, and I'll start gradually introducing new segments as we go. Sound good? Now, melodrama out of the way, let's learn about deer! There are at least 47 species of deer, occurring naturally on all continents except Antarctica and Australia. The smallest deer species is the southern poodoo. When it reaches adulthood, it only weighs around 20 pounds, which is 9 kilograms, and is only 14 inches or 36 centimeters tall. And trust me, listeners, they are adorable. The largest extant deer species is the moose, or the Eurasian elk, which can grow up to 6.5 feet, or 2 meters, from hoof to shoulder, and weigh around 1,800 pounds, or 820 kilograms. Though, to be honest, if you've ever seen a moose in person, that height seems a bit too short. Now, 47 species is a lot of deer. So, for sanity's sake, we'll primarily be focusing around the white-tailed deer, the mule deer, and the moose, which is not to say we'll be staying exclusively in North America. Deer play prominent roles in mythology all throughout the world. From the deer-headed goddess of the hunt, Satet, to the Hindu goddess of learning, Saraswati, who takes the form of a red deer, deer are primarily associated with the hunt, but are also associated with learning, fertility, faithfulness, holy men, divine intervention, and the value of maize and peyote in sustaining the body and spirit. Deer play so many roles in so many different mythologies, and yet surprisingly, they are most often depicted as simply deer, the only difference usually being a white coat or golden antlers. For example, in Japanese Shinto, white deer were seen as messengers to the gods, so much so that the white deer is the symbol of Nara City today, and at Kasuga Shrine in Nara Park, There are gardens where sacred deer live in comfort, fed and maintained by the keepers of a shrine. This is not to say deer themselves are not a force to be reckoned with. In Norse mythology, there are somewhere between one and four red deer stags that chew on the branches of the tree Yggdrasil that holds up all the worlds. They all have names, which I am not even going to attempt, and are thought to represent the destructive forces of the north, south, east, and west winds they, along with the nidhog that chews the tree's roots, will eventually kill Yggdrasil and help bring about Ragnarok. Not so cute now, huh? And this is the point where the episode will inevitably become tainted by my own wildlife biology sensibilities. Deer are cute and represent so many positive things in so many cultures that sometimes I think people forget how dangerous they are. For example, in one of the most iconic species, the white-tailed deer, Males have been known to reach up to 400 pounds at the extreme and reach a shoulder height of 53 to 120 centimeters, which is 21 to 47 inches. With the exception of the reindeer, only male deer grow antlers, but adult deer, male or female, have enough striking power using just their hooves to break bone. If you're still disinclined to believe how serious a deer attack can be, I've linked a pretty well-known video of a deer attacking a hunter in the show notes for your viewing pleasure. In fact, aside from not having opposable thumbs, really, one of the deer's only weakness vis-a-vis unarmed human combat is that they can't really see orange. Deer have dichromatic vision, which means yellows and blues stand out to them really well, but reds and oranges are difficult for them to distinguish. Luckily, you probably won't have to face a deer in combat, unless, of course, you run into our two featured monsters this week, the deer woman and the Pomola. Deer Woman is a spirit of the Eastern Woodlands and Central Plains tribes. She often appears either as a deer or a beautiful young woman with cloven deer hooves instead of feet. She is most often associated with fertility and love, but in recent years has gained something of a dual personality. To the native peoples of Oklahoma, for example, Deer Woman has gained something of a boogeyman aspect, catching and trampling boy-crazy young women or disobedient children. More generally, though, while she is a spirit of love and fertility, she also enjoys preying on promiscuous or unmarried men. With characteristics of both a siren and a succubus, she lures men with a combination of beauty and spells, and then drains them of their vitality. If you are a disobedient child or an unfaithful man, there are two ways to avoid death by dear woman. In the Ojibwe tradition, you can use chanting and tobacco to banish her. In other traditions, if you are already under Dear woman's spell, just getting a look at her cloven hooves is enough to break it. Which is not to be said of our next creature, the Pomola, a bird spirit belonging to Abenaki mythology. I say bird spirit with that emphasis because this god of thunder is described as having the wings and feet of an eagle, the body of a man, and most notably, the head of a moose. This creature is not only the god of thunder and a bringer of cold weather, but also the primary resident of Katadin, which, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but the tallest mountain in Maine. And he takes this very seriously. So seriously that the Penobscot people considered climbing this mountain a religious taboo, because it was his home. If you know anything about how territorial moose are, you probably want to avoid accidentally running into one at all costs, too. Especially since this moose headed creature controls both thunder and cold weather. An angry moose is bad enough, but one that can shoot lightning and summon a blizzard? Yeah, no thanks on that hike. I think I'll just stay down here at base camp. Now, I have one last monster of sorts. I say of sorts because this one is much more abstract than its counterparts, but also much more dangerous. It's a bit unusual for us, but I think we'll try something new. So if you'll permit me, let me tell you about this recent addition. Thanks in a large part to Bambi, the adorable Walt Disney film about a baby white-tailed deer that's left orphaned by a hunter and grows up to become king of the forest, young adult interest in deer hunting in the U.S. has taken a little bit of a hit. No one wants to shoot Bambi, after all. Which is, in my opinion, actually not great for the future of deer, cattle, and possibly humanity. Now, before you switch podcasts, Let me explain. Deer, for this example specifically mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, and moose, naturally exist in systems where old, young, and sick individuals regularly fall prey to apex predators such as wolves and catamounts, and occasionally fall prey to bears, wolverines, and golden eagles. This does two very important things. One, it prevents deer populations from exceeding their local carrying capacity which is the ability of a local habitat to provide resources such as food, water, and space without those resources becoming entirely used up. Two, it mitigates the spread of disease in the population, because theoretically those individuals that are diseased become easier targets for predators. Unfortunately, thanks to a very concentrated effort on the part of the early U.S. government and much continued lobbying by ranchers, gray wolves and cougars have become virtually non-existent in the U.S., with the exception of pocket populations in places like Yellowstone National Park. Deer, in places where the wolves and mountain lions are now entirely gone, such as in New England, have had a field day. Their populations skyrocketed, they began stripping local plant resources to the point of environmental collapse, and individuals not strong enough to compete for food began migrating into the suburbs, eating grandma's persimmons and the neighbor's lawn. This very convenient wildlife viewing seems cute at first, But as I mentioned before, adult deer can be very dangerous, and they may decide your golden retriever is just a weird-looking wolf and act accordingly. Now, all this would be enough of a problem without what happened in 1967, the first clinical recognition of CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Now, without getting into too much detail, let me tell you why CWD is terrifying and needs to be stopped by increased hunting efforts, or, more ideally, the increased reintroduction of catamounts and gray wolves. CWD is a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, a category of disease so named because ultimately, it leaves your brain looking like a dish sponge, hence the spongiform. This disease is most commonly characterized by difficulties in movement, progressive rapid weight loss, and ultimately neurodegeneration. Not a lot of visible symptoms. Oh, and it is always fatal. It's spread by an agent called a prion, a misfolded protein that acts similarly to a virus, except worse. I say worse because we still don't fully understand why prions do what they do. They live in neurological tissue like the brain and the spine, but can also spread to muscles like the meat. And if a diseased animal pees, drools, or dies on a patch of soil, the prions can remain active there for years and years infecting the soil to the point where eating grass growing from the same soil can cause infection. Now, the reason this is so concerning is that there are two other transmissible spongiform diseases we humans need to worry about. One is exclusive to humans, called variant creutzfeldt jakob disease, which is a rare and nasty way to die, and another that can be transmitted from cows to humans, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease. Both of these diseases share characteristics with CWD, and, conveniently for disease evolution, deer can and do get mad cow disease, and can theoretically transmit that to people. So, with all of these related diseases existing simultaneously, and with an already established disease pathway between deers, cows, and humans, not a huge stretch to say that someday soon CWD may evolve enough to transmit to humans. In fact, this is such a likely possibility that the CDC recommends hunters not eat brain, spine, lymph node, or eye tissue from deer they hunt in the wild. This is ultimately why I decided to do a deer episode, because folklore monsters are fun and interesting. But sometimes the scariest monsters are the invisible, creeping kind. The kind brought about by messing with the natural order. The kind that have big brown eyes and dainty legs that you don't see coming until it's too late. That's all for Dear. I hope you enjoyed these cervids, and if you're curious about any of these stories, check the show notes to find out more. Intro and outro music is, as always, by Scott Ethington. Lastly, if you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more and more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember... Anyone can be a monster!